Silent Night, Deadly Night, that's as harrowing a story of a little boy <laughs> trying to make his way in the world with those horrible nuns and everything that happens to him as I've ever seen in any movie. And the weird part about it is, as fucked up as that kid's life is, I watched that movie and I go, that's a little too close to how I was raised. <laughs> I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. This is Kurt Sayenga, director and showrunner of Eli Roth's History of Horror. Today's episode features filmmakers Quentin Tarantino and Eli Roth, speaking by transatlantic cable linking Hollywood to Budapest, where Eli is shooting his latest film. The longtime friends and passionate cinephiles discuss our season three topics of sequels, holiday horror, psychics, mad scientists, apocalypse, and infection films. As you may expect, there are deep cuts and strong opinions here. Ladies and gentlemen, Quentin and Eli. Awesome. Hello, Eli. Hey, Quentin. Here we are, half a world away. I feel like I feel like the last time we did our history of horror interview, you were just about to start Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was yeah, like that, that, that seems like a, that seems like, like you're ten years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago, I know, and here I am in like week one of Borderlands, so right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty cool, man. Welcome back. So I remember last time we covered so much ground, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about on the show, one of the cool things about the show is that it really, like people were just writing down the titles that we talked about, and they'd go and watch those movies. And a lot of horror sequels are terrible and get a bad rap, and for good reason, but I want to focus on the sequels that are awesome and the sequels that don't suck. Right, uh-huh. And some of them are maybe more well-known than others. But I want to know, just sort of in general, is there a secret? What do you think makes a good horror sequel? A good horror sequel is like any good genre film sequel, all right, where it's like you enjoyed what you saw the last time and it has characters in the case of Axel Foley, who's the hero, all right, in Beverly Hills Cop 2, all right, or a monster, like the shark and jaws. And so it has some iconic character, iconic setup that you want to experience again. And you want to get all the pleasures of the film from the first time. Everything that worked for the character in the horror sequel, anything that worked for the monster, worked for the character, or worked for the mythology 
that they were creating. But frankly, you want it to be better. I mean, that's one of the reasons why most sequels don't work because it feels like it should be better, not not mm -hmm. lesser. Even when it's okay, even when it's like, okay, well, well, it's not as good as the first one, but yeah, it wasn't bad. That seems bad. Well, there's certain films that it's almost like the second movie wasn't so great or wasn't as good as the first one. And then the third one, like Nightmare on Elm Street 3, suddenly mm -hmm. reinvents the franchise. And becomes I, a case can be made for Freddy's Nightmares, all right? You know, the uh, the homosexual subtext in Freddy's Nightmares uh, is a case to be made. <laughs> I, 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 for sure, I love, I'm a defender of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but I thought that <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, was when the series, well, no, when no, Freddy no. started making more of the puns. Well, you're right, no, Dream Warriors, managed to click into the mythology of the first one in a way that was exciting for audiences. But it also seemed on a slightly bigger canvas. It had like a little better actors in it and the cast was a little bit more prestigious. And because of part two, you were surprised by the bigness and the sense of fun. I remember like halfway through the, seeing Nightmare on Elm Street 3, watching Craig Wasson do one of his scenes and all of a sudden you realize they're in a dream. I think when the balls when the pop, mm -hmm. pop, pop, pop balls will disappear and you realize you're in a dream. Mm -hmm. I was like, I remember thinking, well, they're doing a really good job with this. <laughs> this is like a better movie than I thought it was going to be. It was, it was neat. A good example of a horror sequel, not that it's a great horror sequel, but it's a fun movie, but it can't compete with the original, but it's still a fun movie on its own for what it is, is Damien, Omen 2. Yes. But in describing the difference between Omen 1 and Omen 2, you can kind of describe what's the problem with a lot of sequels. Because the thing about The Omen, now it might be hard to remember because The Omen has become so famous. So if you've never seen The Omen before, you've probably heard that it's a movie about a boy who's going to be the Antichrist. You've probably heard about that. But when you saw the movie in 1976, you didn't exactly know that. They didn't say that in the TV spots. They didn't say that in the trailers. There was something going on. They alluded to it, but they didn't say this is a movie about a boy who is the coming of the Antichrist. They did not specifically say it. You had to, they talked about 666, they talked about stuff like that, but they were very obscure about what the actual plot of the movie was. So when you went to the movie theaters to see The Omen, you were in a similar situation to Gregory Peck. He spends the first half of the movie, more than the first half of the movie. Figuring it out. Trying yeah. to figure out, putting the mystery together. And it's not the kind of movie where it's like, oh man, 10 minutes in, you know exactly what's going on. And you got to wait uh, 45 minutes for Gregory Peck to figure it out. No, you're learning with him what the deal is. And then by the time they go to that cemetery, now you know what's going on. You have actually mm -hmm. caught up with the movie. And then it has that scary sequence with the Rottweilers, and now you're all in. So from that point on, you know, that's what the movie's about, and, and you're watching it, leading to him taking the child to that church altar. Damien Omen 2 is different, because we already know Damien's the Antichrist. So the whole movie is people finding out that Damien's the Antichrist, and then they die. <laughs> And then he kills and this, Yeah, and I then mean, somebody else finds Taylor... out Damien's the Antichrist, and then they die. All right? And we just sit here yeah. around and wait for <laughs> William Holden to figure it all out. Right. But we're so ahead of him. But I remember watching Meshach Taylor get 
the bifurcation getting severed in half. That was one of my favorite. The cable kill and the I, elevator well, I didn't and say, the kid under the ice. I didn't say Omen 2 is a bad movie. It's just simple by comparison because you know it going in. You know, and that's when the, the Omen movie started resembling the Friday the 13th movies because it started becoming more about the kills because it's always these people figuring it out. And, but yeah. look, no, the guy getting cut with the cable, you know, that they had... I liked the idea that they felt that they had to come up with something parallel with the pane of glass. With the glass. Cutting off uh, yeah. uh, David Warner's head. And actually, they kind of did. <laughs> they kind of did. I thought so, too. I mean, you're watching it. You're, you're thinking about the first movie. And yeah. they're thinking, what if we just did an entire body chopped in half? And it was really, really one of the best sequences. sequences. Knowing that they had that to live up to, I think they did a pretty good job of... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and the kid under the ice, the birthday party was the like yeah. the most disturbing thing. That was that was like following the ice. The same thing follows in the Jaws sequel because it's like okay, it's just another shark, and then we're gonna watch four, five, or six random attacks and everything, and then Murray Hamilton is gonna say, "Don't close the beach again," and then Brody's gonna have to go out there and, and fight this beast again. Now, having said that, I actually think Jaws two is a I, the, the ending is horrible. The ending of Jaws two is horrible. What ruins Jaws two is the way they kill the shark. It's just so ridiculous. The way he jumps in the electrocution line. And yeah, the power exactly. Line and I mean, drops, I keep waiting yeah. for Fonzie to uh, water ski over him. All right. <laughs> it's literally a movie that jumps the shark. It Jaws literally jumps, jumps the, shark. the shark. I mean, but the, the shark looks the same as the one from Happy Days. All right. The, the beach looks the same. I, I totally expect to see Fonzie flying over the climax. But yeah, no, this is the sh this is the shark jumps. It's like worse than jumps. It's the shark jumps. Yeah, yeah. But. But Janash Schwartz actually did a pretty good job up until that time all right, by spacing out the attacks. And, and he has the one attack that's terrific, the one with Ann Dusenberry, where it's like the young guy mm -hmm. and the girl and the sailboat. Yeah, the sailboat's a great one, the, the two runner things. That attack is good enough to be in the first movie. Yeah, you know, where the shark gets the guy and like, heads towards the boat. That's good enough to be in the first movie. That's the one attack sequence that is good as the first film. That literally could have been in the first movie. But the thing about it is Jaws was much more than random attacks by the shark until they finally get their shit together to attack him. You know, it had all this characterization and it had all this comedy and it had these three magnificent characters and it was about their fighting and their bonding. And so it was just much more than all of that. However, even for people who put down Jaws 2, there is something kind of great in Jaws 2 that can't be denied. And that is getting to watch Roy Scheider play his iconic character, Matt Brody, all right, one more time, just to see him, like, you know, be in the uniform and, like, you know, Yeah, to just watch him as Chief Brody. Yeah, playing that iconic character, one more chance at it is pretty cool. You know, you have the two most iconic horror movies, are Jaws and Psycho. One has a sequel that's not great, but Psycho 2, Richard Franklin manages to make what I thought we were all surprised. You didn't think they could make a sequel to Psycho, and I, I remember I loved it when I saw it. Oh, well, I mean, Richard Franklin had everything going against him when he did the Psycho 2 sequel. Because in a strange way, back in that time in the 80s, Psycho was even more revered than it is now. And Hitchcock was definitely more revered than he is now. By the 80s, Hitchcock was treated like some sort of cinematic saint. So... The idea of remaking 
a Hitchcock film or the idea, even though there was quite a few of them out there. The 39 Steps had just been remade. The Lady Vanishes had just been remade. The idea of sequelizing a Hitchcock icon was unthinkable. Yeah, well, the idea of remaking, but especially sequelizing, people talked about it like sacrilege. I mean, to the degree, I think I remember on the Tom Snyder show, a three-way conversation between David Cronenberg, Janat Schwarz, and John Carpenter. And they're talking about the state of horror films. And then they mention, what do you think about the Psycho sequel coming out? And they were like, oh, I wouldn't touch that. I wouldn't touch it. Well, what, you're going to try to be better than Hitch? Forget about it. I did not feel that way. One, because I'm not as enamored with Hitchcock as everybody else is, nor am I that enamored with, nor am I overly enamored with Psycho. But I was enamored with Richard Franklin. He was my favorite of all the Australian directors. He was the Australian Hitchcock. Uh, and I had seen his film Patrick, and I had, uh, uh, had seen his film Road Games. I even saw one of his sex films, True Story of Eskimo Nell. And Road Games, to this day, is my favorite Australian film. Not just horror film, my favorite Australian film. And Brian De Palma had really created a genre unto himself of these Hitchcock-like thrillers. And Road Games was the best non-De Palma Hitchcock-like thrillers in the 80s. And there was a lot of Hitchcock-like thrillers. Because I look, working at a video store, like customers love that stuff. So whenever we got a Hitchcockian type of movie, but there was a new movie, we always pushed it. And the, and the audience really loved it, whether it was William Fruit's Bedroom Eyes or the Wheat Brothers' Lies. I mean, everyone, oh, wow, that's a Hitchcock kind of film? Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a shot. Well, Road Games was one of the best. So the idea that Richard Franklin was now, okay, now he's, he's got the opportunity to do the second story. And I, I met Richard Franklin at the time that he was making the movie. I asked him, I go, what are your ambitions for the movie? I mean, it does seem like everybody wants it to fail. Everyone, like, they, they resent it. They literally, they think it's sacrilege. How are you handling that? And he goes, well, people are going to say whatever they're going to say, but hopefully when they see the movie, they'll feel different. And I go, well, what are your hopes for it? He goes, well, my hopes for it is that you like the first movie and that, that you'll like the second movie and maybe 10 years from now or 15 years from now, you'll think about a scene from one or the other one, but you won't exactly remember which one you were thinking about because it's just all the Norman Bates story. And that's what he did. He didn't just interject, okay, Norman Bates, the killer is back. He made it the Norman Bates story. And Norman Bates was the actual hero of the story. And I think not only, I mean not only do I think Anthony Perkins is even be as great as he is in Psycho I think he's even better in Psycho too I think it's one of the great lead performances in any horror film ever made his performance in Psycho too I mean it's just a magnificent performance you bought a ticket to see a boogeyman and now you, you know I mean, from the moment he shows up with Robert Loggia who is normally is so abrasive. It is like the best, it's like the coolest psychiatrist in the history of movies <laughs> in that movie. You're like, Robert Loggia? Yeah, yeah, really, he is. Yeah, Loggia's great. But he, uh, but when the minute they show up and they talk and everything, all of a sudden now you are rooting for Norman. You're rooting for Norman to keep it together. You're rooting for Norman to be sane, to, to be happy. You're actually rooting for him to be happy. Mm -hmm. And now you don't want any of the horror stuff to happen. 
And we, and me and my friends, we liked it so much that like, you know, we got into a passionate discussion about it afterwards. You, and you know what? He would have been okay. If that damn bitch would have left him alone, mm -hmm. he would have been okay. <laughs> well, there's, it's interesting because then they went Psycho 3 and Psycho 4 and Bates Motel. I mean, Norman Bates became, you know, one of the most fascinating and like kind of beloved movie characters. And I mean, I think, I think after the sequels, the effect that the monsters have is that they become beloved. Mm -hmm. You know, I think once you've seen Freddy after Nightmare on Elm Street 3, you love him. You can't wait for him to make jokes. And by the time you're at Friday the 13th Part 6, you just want to see Jason chop up those kids. Like, you, yeah, yeah. you can't get enough of him. It's interesting that the horror villains, I, I think... I think one of the seminal sequels is Friday the 13th Part 3 for a number of reasons. I love that in Part 2, they just went to Bay of Blood and they just took, you know, Twitch mm -hmm. of the Death Nerve and they just used that formula. But, you know, they just completely, Steve Miner just completely ups the body count with just yeah. more and more ridiculous deaths. But it is Part 3. I remember with Part 3, the, just the very concept of it is like, well, didn't they kill him? Mm -hmm. Haven't they killed him twice? Don't they? Okay, they got away with it in the first one. All right, well, for sure they killed him in the second one. How's he going to be there? And then at a certain point, they're like, yeah, he's Jason. You can't kill him. Like that, That I don't remember that being in a concept in movies before Friday the 13th Part 3. An audience is not caring, going, well, it's Jason. He can always come back from the grave. But people forget, like you uh -huh. said, with Richard Franklin, about not being able to know the difference between Psycho 1 and Psycho 2. People forget the mask didn't come in until part three. Oh, yeah. Well, they forget Jason's not in the first one. Yeah, exactly. Until the last shot. Yeah. Uh -huh. Until the last shot. But that part three, do you remember seeing part three? And then even part three and part four, mm -hmm. I thought was an excellent film. No, well, I, I, of the sequels, I think part four is the class act. That's the one. Yeah. And with Corey Feldman's performance. Oh, he's terrific in it. <laughs> he steals the show. He's, he's awesome. I, I remember that ending scene with him shaving the head and coming out was was chilling. Oh, yeah. All the kids in that one are terrific. I mean, it's like an all-star cast of, like, exploitation movies from the 80s. Because, like, oh, hey, there's Judy Aronson from American Ninja. Oh, hey, there's Crispin Glover from uh, this thing. Oh, hey, there's the guy from uh, Last American Virgin. Hey, it's Kimberly Beck. Hey, Peter Barton from uh, Hell Knight. Hey, guy. Hey, Peter Barton. <laughs> <laughs> They're all together. It's true. It's like a who's who of horror in one film. Well, Joseph Zito, I mean, you know, his his kills in The Prowler, Missing in Action. I mean, like Joseph Zito could do no wrong in my book. He's just one of yeah. my favorite directors. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I think about that. Like that that Friday the 13th Part 3, doing it in 3D was mm -hmm. just such a great gimmick. Mm -hmm. But I remember after that, it was like, you know, because Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which was just one of the most confusing. As a kid, I love it now, but as a kid... You were just like, is Michael Myers going to come out of one of these masks? Well, it's one of those things where, like, I knew Michael Myers wasn't going to be in the movie because I read the literature about it, and I was still disappointed that he wasn't in the movie. <laughs> I knew going in, but the movie, what they gave me, wasn't good enough as far as I was concerned. <laughs> right. We went on the Atkins diet for that one. Um, yeah, I'm, much to my chagrin, I can still sing the, the shamrock damn jingle. Eight more days till Halloween. We always do it. <laughs> but, and we, I think we all do it. Anyone who's of that age that saw that movie, eight days until Halloween, uh -huh. we always like text each other, you know, on the, <laughs> like on the 23rd of October. That's when the texts are flying around with friends singing eight more days till Halloween. But what you're talking about is just, I think, du jour for the majority of most horror sequels because it's not the situation where most horror films have heavy characters or heavy landscape that deserves 
a trilogy, not just a part two and a part three. But no, there's, there's, there's much more to be mined here. We can go much further with this. I mean, now, Dawn of the Dead is one that, is, that does that. It, it, it creates a wonderful mythology. And it can go further with it, and like, and the further you go, the more you know, it brings up even more questions, and the more you want to know. Okay, well, what did they do ten years after that? Well, what happens ten more years after that? Okay, is there anybody in a safe situation? It's one of the few horror films that offers up that kind of thing, but because what you're describing. Where it's like, well, at a certain point, well, it's Michael Myers, so of course they can't kill him. Oh, it's Jason, so of course they can't kill him. So with the Romero movies, there is a mythology there to explore. Night of the Living Dead, it's everybody, it just happened. And so they're trapped in a house. Dawn of the Dead, now it's happened all over the place. And now what do the survivors do? Day of the Dead. Now, it's just the way of the world, all right? And it's been two years or so, and now the, uh, the survivors are living underground. That whole rodeo system that they use in Day of the Dead to, to corral the zombies in order to capture them and, and do their experiments on them. I go, wow, that's really clever. <laughs> that, that's probably how that something like that would work. You're always surprised by that. But in the case of just exactly like what you said with Michael Myers or Jason, and then it's everybody is like, oh, well, it's, it's Jason, so of course they can't kill him. And Jason shows up, yeah, yeah, man, okay, well, I'm gonna make a bet. You know, first murder's gonna, first kill's gonna happen in minute 12. No, man, first murder's gonna happen in minute 17. Well, it's also like, once he was using a Roman candle by part five, he was like, oh, he just couldn't go to the hardware store. He's just completely out of weapons. But yeah, that was the yeah. fun, was seeing what Jason was gonna kill them with next. Yeah, but I mean, but the thing is, it suggests that everything becomes less serious, all right? It's not a mythology they're mining. They're just getting more juvenile. They can be, they can deliver a good version of that, but it's still more juvenile. And I like them, but similar to what happened with the Universal Frankenstein movies. You know, the first three were special, all right? The first three told an overarching story. But then when it came into be Ghost of Frankenstein and House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula and Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, which I'm a big fan of, you know, then it's like, you know, now they're making them for the kids. <laughs> by the time they do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, well, that's already your audience by that point. <laughs> They could have done kids in play, all right, meet uh, Jason. Yeah, well, they sent him to space. Well, once Jason goes to space and it's Jason, I mean, yeah. when you're Jason X and Jason in outer space, it's like it like becomes like the Leprechaun sequels. Yeah, so it's just a, a natural dumbing down for kids and for a teenage audience. You know, it's not Fistful of Dollars where, no, this is a great iconic character and this is a mythological take on the West that we want to see explored in bigger and bigger canvases. Another one that I remember seeing and loving, even though it was tonally completely different from the first one, was Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, mm -hmm. which I remember seeing from the poster. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, oh, the, I couldn't believe there was a sequel being made. I remember it was about yeah, yeah. 14 years old when it came out. I was so excited. And then I'm looking at the poster. I'm like, is that the poster for The Breakfast Club? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, why is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 using the poster of The Breakfast Club? <laughs> what is this movie going to be? And it was just 
It was totally nuts and over the top. I loved it. I mean, Bill Mosley's Chop Top. It was a completely different film. They changed Leatherface. I was fighting it at first. Mm -hmm. Dennis Hopper, bring it all down. <laughs> but I really, I, I, I thought it was a charming movie. It wasn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, but I liked it. I liked it when it came out because I really, really, really wanted to like it. Because I also I'm a, was a big fan of the screenwriter, L.M. Kit Carson. And, yeah, L.M. Kit Carson, sure. And I really wanted to see uh, Toby Hooper do something really good. I mean, look, now, look, I don't like it. I think it's silly. I mean, the only thing, the only part about it I really like is that one scene with Chop Top talking as he's lighting the lighting the parts uh, of the scalp. Uh, no, that's a really creepy, but I never need to see it again. I mean, you know, I, I saw I saw it twice at the theaters yeah. and I was like, first, second time, I was like, nah, uh, look, we, we all acted like we liked it more than we did, but I was a little, uh... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I still like the poster, but no, that's like probably poster. what I like the most out of it. One of the sequels that I was really caught unawares by that I thought was, wow, that's that was pretty good. And it's a sequel to movies that I'm politically 100% against. So I don't even know how I ended up even seeing the sequel. But I, I never saw the first uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead movie. And I never saw Return of the Living Dead 2. Because I don't like Dan O'Bannon. And I thought it was sacrilege that, you know, he's trying to jump on the bandwagon the same year that uh, Romero is doing Day of the Dead. And the whole idea of the zombies only eat brains, well, that's just, that's, that's just stupid and ridiculous. So I bo boycotted that movie. I never wanted to see it. And I still haven't seen it to this day. And I'm totally happy not having seen Return of the Living Dead. And I never saw Return of the Living Dead too, even though some of the guys at Video Archive saw it at a market research screening. They said the only good part about it is at the end, there's like a zombie dressed up like Michael Jackson in the thriller video. Yes, there <laughs> that, is. That gets executed. They go, that's the best. That's the only good scene about it. But way after the fact, years and years and years, sometime in the late 90s or early 2000s, I watched the straight to video sequel of Return of the Living Dead Part 3, directed by Brian Usna. I think I'd read either between Video Watchdog or Psychotronic or something that it was like, there was, it, was, there was, it was a pretty good movie. There was something special about it. So I watched Return of the Living Dead 3, not having seen the other ones, and I was completely taken by it. The lead girl in the film gives a terrific performance, and it's really charming, and it's really clever, and I was really taken. But the thing about it that made it really special, you can tell... And the fact that Brian Usna is doing it, you can really tell. Yeah. But 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 literally in the script, watching the movie, you can tell this was written to be a reanimator sequel. Uh. Everything they do fits the reanimator mythology. I mean, even down to the, the whole thing is they're gonna like give his dead girlfriend the reanimation juice. Okay, now they ended up coming up with something that would apply from Return of the Living Dead, but it's obviously was completely and utterly designed as a reanimator sequel. If they did it as a reanimator sequel, it would be the best of the reanimator sequels, hands down. Of it's, the reanimator sequels. It's much better than Bride of Reanimator. But then they just changed it, all right? They all get, nah, let's not, we've done reanimator too much, let's let's do another, uh, uh, change it to Return of the Living Dead. But there's an aspect about that that I even like, <laughs> the arbitrariness of changing the franchise, even when you, it's clearly a reanimator film. It's the bad lieutenant port of call New Orleans of reanimator sequels. <laughs> I remember the two of us specifically talking about how absolutely blown away we were by the truck crash 
the log crash in Final Destination 2. Oh, yeah. That, for me, was one of the, the best surprises of a franchise I didn't love. I saw the first one. I thought it was fun. But Final Destination 2, for me, got me so into it. And I thought, oh, this is such a, such a clever hook. The way they staged those deaths, no, the truck crash, the thing through the eye, man. No, but at the end, and, and even that. their whole format, the whole mythology, the whole setup. Okay, now one by one, these guys are going to start dying in these weird Rube Goldberg <laughs> yeah, ways. orchestrated deaths. No, that was actually one because I, I actually saw Final Destination 2 first. And so when I went back and saw the first one, I liked it. But I go, oh, no, they didn't get the mythology right until part two. Well, it's funny because they sort of didn't get known by number. But like, oh, did you see the one? Is that the one with the truck crash? Yeah, no, the plane crash is the first one. What's the bridge crash? That's part five. Like, you, you're just yeah. always then, yeah, No, 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 no. For... that's the one with the roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, so that's the roller. Exactly. Like, suddenly that's the one with the, the roller coaster became... with all the Tom Cruise impersonators in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I yeah, thought no, it was there literally really is one guy. One guy in part three is totally doing. You know, uh, uh, looks like he's starring in all the right moves, the musical on Broadway. Oh. <laughs> and then another guy is starring in the Broadway musical version of A Few Good Men. All the Tom Cruise Broadway guys. All the Tom Cruise Broadway musical guys. Summer of '86. I know we talked about Chainsaw, but Summer of '86 also brought Aliens. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that for me was a game changer because I remember. It was like the first one on steroids. I mean, that was my first, you know, it had that action and adrenaline of the Terminator and the horror of the first one. Well, Do you I remember mean, when you first saw Aliens? Well, yeah, and I was there for the first night of that show. That was really exciting. But again, that just goes to what I was saying. They had an interesting character with an interesting mythology. So it wasn't just about, okay, let's come up with another six people that we can, st- uh, and put them on a spaceship and stick the alien in there. It's not, you know, terror within part two. All right. And so it's like, uh, uh, let's come up with six different people and come up with a different spaceship and put the alien on that room and, and then watch them kill those six people off. It was the idea that, you know, the whole concept of the, the aliens as a race and who exactly were they and how did they work and what were they doing? What was their planet? What's the deal? The idea of like one creating that much havoc was one thing, but to have a whole army of them, again, that's your concept is so good. There's room to grow with it. And they had a great lead character in, in Sergoni Weaver's uh, Ripley you know, to, uh, a human character to, to base it on. But the alien was a great character. We wanted to know more about the alien. And seeing the queen mother laying the eggs and you had Newt. I also remember when it was the first time the guys were using video game language in a sci-fi movie when Bill Paxton's like, forget it, man, game over, sorry, just wasted. Like someone using that kind of lingo, that kind of, it felt so fresh and so modern in a sci-fi film. And that you could mix sci-fi and horror and action, blending all those so seamlessly. Gremlins 2, the new batch. Edgar loves Gremlins 2. I remember, I mean, it's like the first one on steroids. Are you a fan of Gremlins 2? Or what do we think? I mean, I remember when I saw the movie, I thought the projector broke. Yeah. And then Hulk Hogan came out and complained to Paul Bartel. <laughs> but that's kind of a that's kind of an underrated film. But I loved Gremlins 2. Oh no, I think Gremlins 2 is Joe Dante's best movie. I mean, to the degree that I mean, I think it's Joe Dante became a director so he could do Gremlins 2. He's, he's always a, been a, a smart alecky kind of director because he's a smart ass kind of smart alecky kind of guy. There always is a little bit of a Mad Magazine parody of his own movie running mm-hmm. in the margins. Yes, of a Joe Dante film. And with Gremlins 2, he was able to do a Mad Magazine takeoff 
on the first Gremlins for the entire movie, for the length of the movie. And it held for the entire length of the movie. But when they actually start goofing on every aspect of Christopher Columbus's original premise <laughs> in the movie, in the sequel, <laughs> that was hysterical about, okay, don't eat after midnight. Okay, so what if, if the Mogwai eats a roast beef sandwich at 11.45 and he gets some roast beef stuck in his teeth at 12.30, it gets unlodged. Does that count as eating? <laughs> what if Mogwai is eating an Eggs Benedict breakfast on an international flight? <laughs> And it crosses over into another time zone. Does that count eating after midnight? <laughs> or does it only count eating after midnight from the airport he left from? <laughs> well, once Phoebe Cates started parroting the Santa Claus story. That's right. The, the, the Phoebe Cates parroting the Santa Claus I didn't monologue. know you were allowed to do that. I was like, are you allowed to make fun of your own movie? I remember seeing that going, they can't. It, it, that's a, you described it perfectly that he was making the Mad Magazine parody version. Well, of I Gremlins. think I, I, I think it's always been always been a little clear that Joe Dante has a has a little contempt for the first movie. <laughs> it's just not his kind of movie. He wrestled it to the ground and made it his movie. But I don't even know if Joe Dante would see Gremlins if he didn't direct it. And uh, I mean, he's just too much of a Weisenheimer, all right, to not hate himself for shooting all the Mogwai stuff at the beginning. I think it seriously bums him out that that was his biggest hit. So the idea to have complete revenge on your one fluke hit right, was, just, was just too powerful. And as opposed to like the first Gremlins, which recedes from the memory into you know, like all those Amblin movies, Gremlins 2 just gets better every time you see it. Gremlins 2 works. It's just really, it's really, really funny. I, in fact, I would even go so far as to say it's the first of those gag-like movies to 100% work from beginning to end since Airplane. Like, I like Top Secret and everything, but it doesn't quite work as a movie, but it's got a lot of funny gags. And there's a lot of movies that have a lot of funny gags that, like, don't take themselves seriously as movies. Airplane because of the situation of the storyline, had a through line that you were able to follow. And so you actually did care about whether or not the, uh, uh, the plane landed or not. And, this, and, and in the course of Gremlins and New Batch, while it's just one joke after another, and it's, it's not just all the, it's not even just the jokes that people are saying on screen, it's the jokes going on in the background, the voiceover jokes going on here, what's on TV, what, what's this Gremlin over there doing? That's like one of the things like in Airplane 2. Airplane 2, the stuff in the foreground is not that funny. The stuff in the background is hysterical. <laughs> Every joke in the background is, or off screen, is a killer. <laughs> but, but in the case of Gremlins and New Batch, no, you actually do care how it comes out. So it is a Mad Magazine spoof with a dramatic arc. It's true. It's a beautiful way to put it. I think if people saw it under that lens, they'd probably appreciate it more. Well, I think everyone sees it that way now. Uh, look, I actually, it was accepted that way. It just wasn't a big hit. Gremlins 2, the new batch, is the only time Joe Dante ever got a rave review in The New Yorker. I didn't know that. You got a rave. I just remember that it cost, he said it cost $60 million and it didn't make its money back. Well, no, it didn't do well, all right? But the people who saw it were like, what the 
<laughs> is this even coming out of Hollywood? This is this is amazing. <laughs> I, I got my money's worth. Once Hulk Hogan and Paul Bartel were in the scene together and the projector broke, it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. I actually stood up and yelled, the projector broke. I was the idiot that got fooled by that gag in the theater. And then like you watch it on and you watch it on video, all right, then they, 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 they redid the scene so it's now the gremlin is in your video, uh, is in your video player? Yeah, the videotape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holiday horror. I mean, it starts, it all goes back. I guess we can probably trace it back to Black Christmas, Bob Clark, the great Bob Clark. And then the rumor was that Halloween was going to be there, that he was going to do a Black Halloween. I love slasher movies, and there's just something about setting it around a holiday that just makes me happy. It hits a sweet spot in my soul. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite of the holidays? I mean, I'm you went through the whole calendar. It was New Year's Evil, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could put God Told Me To into the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yeah, you could, yeah. Uh-huh. April Fool's Day. I mean, Mother's Day. It's it's endless. What What is it that tying it to a holiday that makes it so fun? Well, usually, one, they have a good title. The idea that you're going to take this holiday and then make it something of terror is inviting. And then you have all the accoutrement. Like my the, bloody Valentine. Yes, exactly. The then you have poster. all the accoutrement of the uh, of the holiday in question. When you finally do Thanksgiving, whether it'll be you know pilgrims yes. and Indians and and shitty turkey decorations, you know, plastered up on walls, of course. or it's all the shitty Valentine decorations that are plastered up all over Valentine's Bluff for uh, my bloody Valentine. And usually, and it's a good excuse to get a bunch of group of people together to uh, to celebrate. And there also tends to be more of a family situation in the holiday horror films. My Bloody Valentine. I remember us getting very emotional about the end song, the, the ballad of Harry Warden. Yeah, and yeah. The end theme song, a long time oh, no, it's, ago. It's one of my favorite theme songs in any horror film ever. And well, the movie was such a classy production. I was really taken by how classy a production it was. And then to end with like a well-written theme song that actually tells the story of the movie. I go, oh wow, they they really went all out. This is this is a this is a first grade A production. There's a few of these that I'm a fan of. Obviously, I'm a fan of Black Christmas. Obviously, I'm a big fan of uh, My Bloody Valentine. To me, it's the best of the Canadian slasher films, partly because it commits to being a Canadian slasher film. It's not taking place in upstate New York or it's not someplace in Minnesota or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, it's in a steel mining town somewhere in, in Canada where they have thick Canadian accent. And it's not about the suburb. It's a very working class town. It, it's like it's like the town in the deer hunter as a serial killer going through it, killing them all off. Yeah, it's not it's not like well it's not like well to do kids in a sorority house being. No, no, it's, it's like people they're all... in this in a mining town. No, any know. one of those guys could have been in Deer Hunter. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I really like Lori Haller in it, who's the, who's the girl in the film. She's, she was really good. I'm a big fan of that film, and I'm a big fan of, uh, um, I like April Fool's Day. I love April. Fred Walton, man, I mean, what, what a great film. April Fool's Day, I mean, for me, the ending was what kept it from being a classic horror film. But that first, even though I like the ending, but those, those first, the kills in that movie are really fantastic. The puzzles, the mm-hmm. guy on the boat. It kept me guessing all the way. There's some really fantastic kills in that movie. Yeah, but okay, there was that 
It's like ten little the, 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 yeah, but there's that island. there's that femi- you know there was that feminist whore fanzine that you showed me. Yeah, they, yeah, we got yeah we got them. We were interviewing them for the show. Yeah, well, they had that interview. Yeah, they, they, they had, she had wrote that review about uh, April Fool's Day, and she was like talking about what a good film it is and how it's unfair simply because of the reveal ends up being non horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, it's unfair. Does that negate the whole movie? Yeah. That it negates the whole film. Now I really like the ending. I think it's, I, I think it's, now I, now I know what to expect. I really like the ending. And that almost goes back to Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Everyone gets pissed off when it turns out that it's like the ambulance driver as opposed to Jason doing the murders. Mm-hmm. But until that reveal happens, those are actually some of the best kills in any Friday the 13th movie. That Friday the 13th movie works like a good Friday the 13th film. Well, that's until you realize it's the, until you realize it's the ambulance guy and the go, oh, screw this movie. <laughs> well, that's your question. I loved your boat theory that a horror movie has to be like a boat that's coming to, coming in from port. And if it doesn't, if there's one little rock, if there's one hole in it, the whole thing sinks. Yeah, yeah. That it's got to have logic. But um, I think, and but I, I wonder, think that, but in the case of, but in is the that case about of, it breaking its own rules? Yeah, but in the case of April Fool's Day, I think that's our failing because no, it's April Fool's. It didn't happen. That's the it played point a joke. of it's the it's it's the point of the holiday. It's the point of it all. <laughs> April Fools. That's it, it's clearly marked on the label. It's our misunderstanding of it. They did a perfect job. Yeah, you're right. I never even thought of it that way. That's really funny. And also, I'm a huge Deborah Foreman fan. So anything where she has one of the big roles, whether it be Valley Girl or uh, My Chauffeur or April Fool's Day, I'm totally down. In fact, I just got through watching Grizzly 2, and she's in Grizzly 2. I'm like, oh, my God, Deborah Foreman's in it. Great. (laughs) But if I was going to talk about one holiday horror film, I think the only one that really... Except for like what we talked about April Fool's Day that we just referred to. The only one that truly bears a discussion is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, I was just going to bring that one up. I mean, it's it's amazing. It, that movie's amazing. It's an amazing... The sledding scene, that movie, yeah. I've, I don't know if I've ever cheered louder in a movie than the decapitation and the sledding. People who don't understand the concept of slasher movies and people who don't understand the concept of that style of 70s, 80s horror, you know, to them, it's all violent porno as far as they're concerned because they just don't get it. And most of the films that they made a big deal about, I wish they were closer to what they think they were. I wish they were that strong. I wish they were that rough. They're, they're making a mountain out of a molehill. Silent Night, Deadly Night, is fucked up for a horror film fan. Yeah. If you've seen all the slashers, you're a little taken aback by Silent Night, Deadly Night. And not because it's shot so cruddy or it looks like a, a 70s roughy or anything. It's not like Nightmare, all right? You know, it's not that like the filmmaking itself looks sleazy. It's what they're shooting is sleazy. And there's something really uncomfortable about that movie, and it, uh, it's very violent. I really like the lead kid in it. I really, I, I like them both. I like, I, I like him as a as a young man. I like him as a little boy, and I like him as an adult. But one of the things that works really well in that movie is, and this is where it breaks form, 
with the other slasher films. The other slasher film, what makes them slasher films is is their their genre is so rigid. You know, they they all kind of follow the same playbook to one degree or another. It's almost part of the fun of them. And one of the playbooks that they've always followed is there might be an inciting incident that turns the killer into the killer, like in Terror Train or something like that. Rosemary's Killer. Rosemary's the Killer. Prowler. Yeah. And the Prowler. There might be a, there might be an incident that makes that happen. But you don't see their lives for 20 minutes or so. You yeah, know, it starts I, with prom night with a bunch of kids and then they're adults. So Yeah, anyway, how, how, how they became who they became. Rob Zombie did that when he did his Halloween. He was like, no, 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 let's really, let's see Michael Myers when he was younger. Let's, let's build Michael Myers before he puts on the mask. And I, that's one of the things I really like about that movie. Silent Night, Deadly Night spends 20 minutes with this little boy to show you his horrible life that he has that made him this, the way he is. And frankly, that's as harrowing a story of a little boy <laughs> trying to make his way in the world with those horrible nuns and everything that happens to him as I've ever seen in any movie. Fuck for show, all right? It's, it's the opening 20 minutes <laughs> of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And, and the weird part about it is as fucked up as that kid's life is, I watched that movie and I go, that's a little too close to how I was raised. <laughs> wow. People, people were that mean to me when I was a kid. Adults were actually that mean. Not, I'm not saying everybody was, but I, I, it's, I saw myself in that kid. I go, that is, it's so that, is, that is too close to my childhood. N nothing that bad happened, but that's definitely too close to my it's childhood. too close. Well, I remember Silent Night, Deadly Night and Sleepaway Camp were the two slasher films that caught me by surprise because they were just so unrelenting and so brutal and took no prisoners and made no apologies and were both exceptionally well done. It's interesting you compared it to Nightmare where you think of, you know, Romano Scavolino, Nightmare on a Damaged Brain, which is about the sleaze and the perversity yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Times no, that's, Square. That's, that, but, that's meant to look like it was shot on 42nd Street and only shown on 42nd Street. Yes, if you feel dirty watching it, you feel like you need a shower. But when you watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, at the time, the idea of putting on a Santa Claus suit and going out and killing, mm -hmm. no one had actually taken horror to that level. No one had ever thought to do that. Oh, but, but and, and that was people were so, I remember religious groups were protesting. Oh, absolutely. That it, absolutely. This is but, at the end of the slasher boom when you had to outdo everything that was before it. But and I mean, the thing, but the thing is, the entire section when he's trapped in the toy store. Yeah. I mean, talking about fucking around with your perspective of, of things that you know in this weird, violent milieu is when you have the killer in the, in the Santa Claus outfit, but he's in a toy store. So every scene you watch behind him is Muppet toys. There's Kermit. There's Miss Piggy. He turns down another aisle and, and it is like Bugs Bunny and Snoopy. And he turns down another aisle and it's Mickey Mouse and Goofy and Donald Duck. I mean, it's every character you've ever known that has and he, those characters witness the entire night of murder. They are in every shot at a certain point in the last 20 minutes of the movie. I mean, it just starts being funny how you're like having a staring contest with Kermit. <laughs> yeah, like Daffy Duck is suddenly in a slasher movie. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> it's through all your childhood toys. There, hey, there's, okay. Oh, he's killing her. They're like, you see a, a Snoopy right there. <laughs> <laughs>
But it's also that children would run up to him and be so trusting and go, Santa, Santa, Santa. And you know he's just going to kill them. And then also, he you would never be able to get away with using all those characters in the background anymore. They could do that then. I'm a big fan of I that. I know, movie. it's true. Yeah, you'd have to clear all of it now. Yeah. I remember a movie that I absolutely love that sort of has nothing to do with the holiday, but they almost tricked me by the holiday is Mother's Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Mother's Day is one of my all-time oh, yeah. favorite movies. But... It's also this really weird satire on consumerism. Oh, absolutely. And is. all of those fake commercials that they put in the movie. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, I think this movie actually might be some kind of weird, brilliant art film in a crazy way. Yeah, well, and yet it's also one of the most perverse and violent films ever made. What was your whole thing that you had about Boogie Nights and uh, uh, Mother's Day? I watched Boogie Nights <laughs> and I thought that the entire pool party sequence at Burt Reynolds' house. Uh -huh. When, you know, when he, when Dirk Diggler, mm -hmm. when he gets the name Dirk Diggler, yeah. when he shows up at the house and you're following a girl on roller skates and it's Roller Girl, mm -hmm. I was like, this is like the party scene that's at the house when it's Abby and then there's Trina uh -huh. and they go and they, you, it cuts to, it says Beverly Hills, but it was actually shot at Lloyd Kaufman's parents' house <laughs> yeah. in Connecticut. And you're following a girl on roller skate and the guy's like, you got to have gross points, not net points. The girl's like, did you say gross point? I'm gross point. And then uh, the guy doing the coke, who is the prop master, Sandy Hamilton, does the coke, like doing the line of coke and passing out. And the people just like, mm -hmm. you know, talking about taking the 405 to Sepulveda. Nah, man. And there's just roller skating. Then she gets the phone call to have the reunion with her friends. And it's weird. Like I, Mother's Day is one of those movies. Every time I rewatch it, I realize that I'm just stealing something else from it. <laughs> yeah. But it also has this incredible performance from Beatrice Pons, who was yeah. credited as Rose Ross. Mm -hmm. And then they have, uh, you know, it's. I remember it said Holden McGuire and Billy Ray McQuaid. Those guys all took. Everybody took fake names. Yeah. Uh, Michael McCleary. No, but they're they're fantastic. They're. Uh, you know, to me, the sons are two of the best performances of that entire era of the genre. Well, the guy Gary, I feel like his name is Gary, not Gary Lockwood, like Gary, um, who played, uh, he's wrongly credited on IMDb, but the one, the guy who played Ike was actually on Edge of Night, the soap opera, which Niles McMaster from Bloodsucking Freaks was on. Uh -huh. But when I didn't understand their names, Ike and Adley, and to my dad, Explain that that's Eisenhower and Adelaide Stevenson. Oh, yeah, I yeah, like, uh, yeah. Uh, I was like, they were named like Ike and Adley. Like, why? Why were they named those political names? And that got me thinking when you look at the whole thing with the Est, the kind of EST, the Est parody at the beginning yeah. with like, I love you, I love you. And then the decapitation. And she says, I just take what I want and you can leave the sewer, leave everything else in the city. But I remember the thing about Mother's Day is in terms of using camera to establish character, you have one of them in the opening scene, the man just grabs her and mm -hmm. smothers her and you realize she's dominated by this boyfriend and she's the one who's always dominated by men and the men are dominant in the frame and she's yeah. tiny. Uh -huh. And then when you have Trina, the one who's the wild party girl, the camera's moving like, really moving crazy because that's her lifestyle. <laughs> She's kind of crazy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And the other one is like rigidly and controlled by her mother. And the mother is screaming, I'm a sick woman, I'm a which is used at the end of the movie. And then it's like they, they actually use the camera to represent the characters. And then at the end, when the mother gets suffocated by the breasts, I remember uh -huh. thinking I, I really wanted, first the ax and the balls is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted, 
I wanted something more from the mother's death. I thought, well, maybe she's 80. How can they do it? And then I thought, oh my God, it's perfect. Mother's been suffocated by the breast. Yeah. It's it's really what made me see what you could do with a slasher film. Because up to that point, they were by the, for me as a kid, they were by the numbers of like, how can you kill them? But I started watching Mother's Day over and over and over and thinking, oh my God, you can, you can actually say a lot with a slasher movie. It took it more in the last house on the left kind of, kind yeah. of way. And it kind of delivered that kind of sleazy terror that Last House on the Left has. But there, there is this subtextual comedy and critique of consumerism. There was always something more going on in Mother's Day than what was in the foreground. Now, we can't talk about holiday horror without talking about Jamie Lee Curtis starring mm -hmm. in Terror Train, which is a New Year's Eve one. Prom Night, which uh -huh. is not really a holiday, but it's an event. Yeah. And of course, Halloween mm -hmm. and road games. I didn't care for Terror Train when it came out. And I and I didn't like Prom Night when it came out. I'm like, oh, this is a horrible Carrie ripoff. 11 years ago, I, I started watching all the slasher films all over again. Mm -hmm. And then I went to watch Prom Night again. And I was surprised how much I liked it, watching it like the second time. All the kills are horrible. The kills are awful. All right, but everything except for the kills, I think actually was was very entertaining. <laughs> they did they did a really good job with it. Just the kills don't work. I loved her in Halloween, and and uh, like I said, I think she's a, a, amazing in uh, Road Games. Yeah, Road Games is one of her best her best roles. I remember reading a review <laughs> for uh, for Terror Train that goes, "This movie could do for medical students what Serpico did for cops." <laughs> Just all of a sudden, you just don't trust them at all. Mad scientists. Are you a fan of the old universe, the old James Whale, Frankenstein, Invisible Man, Mad Scientist movies? Yeah, I'm a fan of any of those movies that, uh, uh, for the most part, creates a situation for one of those cool old character actors, whether it be uh, Boris Karloff or Beta Lugosi or Lionel Atwell, to uh, play characters like that. As kids, you know, the famous monsters, like those are the ones that were shown on television. Those are the movies that I saw first. Well, it's funny, okay, like it, it's, it, it's definitely a genre. It's not one that like, it's not one that I had this like tremendous uh, uh, affection for, especially when I was a kid that I sought out. However, mm -hmm. um, where I started taking- Island of Dr. Moreau or any of those films, Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. Well, well, well look, look, obviously Island of Lost Souls is a terrific film, but the thing is though, uh, those weren't the ones that I necessarily sought out. However, I kind of saw this really late in the game. I actually didn't see this until about like six or seven years ago. I'd never seen the um, that before the the Hammer Frankenstein movies, and so I started watching really? the Hammer Frankenstein films, and that was where the Mad Scientist really kind of came into his own because the whole concept of Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein and the whole concept of, of uh, those films is, 
It's the doctor that's the monster. The monster is actually this pathetic creature that you actually feel sorry for. One of the most heartbreaking moments in any horror film, uh, heartbreak, I know heartbreaking is the right word, but like one of these moments where people go, oh, uh, in the history of horror is when the woman gets scared and grabs the scalpel and stabs the monster in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Because you're like, oh, no, he, he didn't do anything. <laughs> He's poor little, bald, pathetic creature. The point is, is that it's Dr. Frankenstein that's the monster. He's the star of the movie, you know, and he's not just struggling with, no, he's become a monster in his struggle for science. The dark side had him before the movie starts. And he doesn't give a damn about anything. And the first two are direct sequels. Revenge is a direct sequel to it, because I think in Curse, they're taking him to the gallows, and then he gets a reprieve. And then after... Revenge, I, I, I'm trying to remember how it goes. I think he becomes the monster. He puts his brain in the monster. Or he puts the brain of the other doctor in the monster. And so you have to do a little bit of gymnastic work to make the other ones fit. But if they, but if everything is always just jumping off from the last one, they don't go out of their way to make it a direct sequel. But I think it is, which because it makes it more interesting. <laughs> I love, well, the Dracula ones, the, the Hammer Horror Dracula. I remember. Yeah, but that's really different, though. That's vampire. We're talking about, you know, the, frankly, the it's because of the vamp, it's because of the Dracula ones. I always stayed away from the Frankenstein ones because mm -hmm. it was like, oh, the Frankenstein makeup for Christopher Lee didn't really turn me on that much. Yeah, it just didn't seem interesting to me. And then when I saw it, I go, wow, the, I like this much more than the Dracula movies. The, I think they're really, really good. And even the whole idea. And, he, and Terrence Fisher did this with the horror of Dracula. The idea that he was actually able, three different times, between the mummy and Dracula and then Frankenstein, take these classic novels, take these classic novels with tons of characters and tons of locations, and really squash them down, tell the same story, but tell it in pretty much one castle with about like five or six people. But it still tells the story of the novel. That's, that's actually kind of a feat to take these wild, wieldy period novels with all these different characters. And, you know, people go, people go to different countries and they end up in the Arctic. All right. And Frank is like, no, no, he just boils it down to the castle and about six people. But he does. And he does an effective version of telling the story. You're just talking about great mad doctors, all right? Then you're talking about Dr. Pretorius in both Bride of Frankenstein and in the Christopher Escherwood Frankenstein, The True Story, James Mason's character. Oh, yeah. Well, Bride of Frankenstein is what we haven't discussed. I mean, Elsa, the Elsa Lancaster hair, it's still iconic to this day. Yeah. That well, was one where very, I remember well, as a kid, you think, where are they going to take the story? And the Bride of... Bride of becomes a thing because of that movie. No, no, Bride, no, the Bride of Frankenstein. No, that's one of the great sequels of all time. It's one of the great movies of all time. It actually transcends being a sequel. Yeah, yeah, it does. There's certain movies that escape the number two and just become their own thing, and that's one of them. Well, I think that's one of the ones where it's better than the first movie. So if I have to choose between watching Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein, I'll always choose Bride of Frankenstein. And and that actually literally does what Richard Franklin was talking about. Because you remember the scene with the old blind man, and people will think that that's in Frankenstein. No, that's in Bride of Frankenstein. In the Mad Doctor category, one of the films that I um, would like to uh, throw in the hat and mention is the Eddie Romero Blood Island trilogy. 
Oh, I don't know those. Which is Brides of Blood, uh, Mad Doctor of Blood Island, and Brain of Blood. So it was actually really interesting because Eddie Romero doing his movies in uh, uh, the Philippines, he's a Filipino director, making his war films and his action films and his pr women in prison movies and his horror films. It's funny about different nationalities, uh, how they respond to this or that and the other. In Europe, we've been definitely affected a lot by Dracula and Frankenstein and, and tell that story over and over and over and over and over again. Something about the Philippines, and maybe it's just Eddie Romero, or maybe it's the Philippines, or maybe it's both of them, they give the kind of respect that we give Mary Wilsoncraft Shelley's Frankenstein story to Island of Dr. Moreau. Because Eddie Romero did basically five movies that are basically the story of the island of Dr. Moreau. The first film, Terror is a Man, is, is a very low-rent version of the island of Dr. Moreau story. The whole Blood Island trilogy is reminiscent of the island of Dr. Moreau story. And then his movie, Twilight People, is just the island of Dr. is just, it's just Eddie Romero's The Island of Dr. Moreau. They just called it the Twilight People. You know, but uh, it basically is, it's, they just did The Island of Dr. Moreau, where Pam Greer playing the Panther Girl. <laughs> it's great. What do you think is the best of the Dr. Moreaus? Lost Souls or the, you know. Oh, the, well, Lost, yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't Val beat Kilmer. Lost Souls. You can't, you, I, I never saw the Marlon Brando one, but you can't, you can't beat. Island of Lost Souls is just one of the creepiest movies ever made. But the Blood Island series is really fun. It's really good, especially the middle one, uh, The Mad Doctor of Blood Island. They all star John Ashley. The first one and the second one, they're, they're kind of unrelated sequels where like John Ashley is basically playing the same character, but he's not the same character. But, it, but the third one is a direct sequel to the second one. Sort of like Garrett Graham in Hi, Mom and Greetings. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He's in both, but he's a different character. Yeah. <laughs> Mad Doctor of Blood Island, one of the things that was actually fun about it is they used to show it here on Channel 13 on the weekends. We had a horror host in Los Angeles played by a guy named Alan Sherman, and his name was uh, uh, Famous Morris. And he, he was a, a talent agent for the monsters. That was his job. He was an agent. He was a talent agent for the monsters. So he had a talent agency. Alan Sherman, hello, mother, hello, father. Alan no, no, Sherman? different different Alan Sherman. <laughs> actually, this Alan Sherman is actually in Rocky. He's the guy that, uh, he's the bartender. Hey, hey, you want me to take a shot? There you go. Hey, I took a shot. Okay, that's that's yeah. famous Morris. All right. So he and was a horror host. And he, he was a, a horror host, and his whole thing was he was an agent for the monsters. So like the Wolfman and and the Mummy are always hanging around his office as a hunchback, as an intern, or as uh, whatever. But Channel Thirteen showed some really. They had a really sleazy package of movies, and one of the things about their package is they had a, a whole package of Hemisphere films, and so it was really unique. When they showed Mad Doctor of Blood Island, there's actually nudity in it, and they didn't clip it out. And I thought maybe it was just in Los Angeles, but when I had started reading more about the movies, I realized that this was kind of known everywhere. And so it was definitely, I mean, it wasn't like full, it's like fleeting nudity, but nevertheless, it starts with a naked native girl running away from the monster, and you see that she's naked. You see a little her little fanny. And so they showed it Saturday night at 11.30. So I called up a bunch of my friends. I mean, we're like in fifth grade. Guys, there's a movie that they're showing on Channel 13 that like actually has nudity in it. And like there's like there's a few different scenes of naked girls running around. Really? Yeah, I'm telling you, it's on Channel 13. They're showing it again on Sunday. They're showing it again in the afternoon on Sunday. So watch it. 
And so actually, I actually got together a couple of friends and we watched it. And I was expecting them maybe to cut out the nudity by the right, time like they, they showed it on Sunday mistake. because they, they got all these Sunday. calls. They didn't. So now it's Sunday afternoon and there's nudity on your TV. It was like, oh, wow. It was, it was exciting. Christmas in July. <laughs> An apocalyptic horror, Nightmare City, Umberto Lenzi. Nightmare City is one of my favorite movies because the infected run, I remember that was like a zombie movie, but they, they run through aerobics classes. No, I will I remember well, I remember it from its continental home video days under the title City of the Walking Dead. Which is funny because City of the Walking Dead, it's actually a running movie. They should have called it City of the Running Dead. That's why I avoided it for so long. And not to be confused with City of the Living Dead. I remember, actually, when they just come running off the boat. At the airport. Yeah, when the plane comes down, just the ship comes, the plane comes down, and they just run right out of yeah. the airport. And Stiglitz just stands there, just looking around. It's one of the great openings. No, it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great opening. I ended up showing it to a bunch of the guys at Video Archives, and they were like, wow, we've never seen an opening like this. And I remember one of the guys said, boy, running away from a, z- a zombie that can run faster than you, that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, they don't get tired. I remember I uh, uh, when Bob Morowski was going to do something with Umberto Lenzi, I go uh, to Bob and go, hey, so tell Umberto how much I love his zombie movie, City of the Walking Dead. And so when Bob Morowski gets to Italy, he tells Umberto Lenzi, oh, well, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of yours, and he wanted me to let, let you know how much he enjoyed your zombie movie, City of the Walking Dead. Zombie. What do you mean, zombie? They're not zombies. It's in the fact that the people, they're not zombies. It's a zombie. He doesn't even understand my movie. He got very offended by the Z word. That became a big thing, all right? Whenever talking about the genres, there's zombie movies, and then there's infected people movies. Well, you you can tell that they're infected and that they're Italians because they generally rip the women's shirts open before yeah. they bite them. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's, like, four scenes of them, like, the nurses, and they're like, like, it's not like they just go for the brains and bite the neck like they do in Dawn of the Dead or zombies. They just see it and they go, ah, and then bite <laughs> Totally underrated movie that I love. Uh, one of my favorite in the kind of the PG early mid eighties PG thirteen movies, which was very exciting at the time, is Night of the Comet. Are you a Night of the Comet fan? Yeah, Night of the Comet was okay. I saw. I ended up seeing that at the Cinerama Dome when it came out. It was okay. I think that Night of the Comet with I liked that. That's the one with it the guy the from Meeting Raoul in it, right? Yeah, Robert Beltran. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And um, what's that? Mary Warrenov is in it. Catherine, um, uh, yeah, what, 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 that name, the girl that had a name like five other girls, Catherine Mary Margaret Stewart. Yes. <laughs> um, but in Night of the Comet, there is one great scene where it, it kind of had punks, it had Uzis. The girls' fathers had been in the military, so they were kind of badasses on machine guns. And uh-huh. They sort of pull off the L.A. apocalypse at five in the morning when they have to completely clear the streets. And, you know, they like shot it at 4.50 or just as the sun was yeah. coming up when there's no cars and they kind of get the shots. 
But there's a great scene where they go into the mall and it's like, I remember as a kid, it was like, oh, wow, you could have the whole mall to yourself. <laughs> and there's a great shot where the girls put down the Uzi and then she picks up a pair of shoes. Uh-huh. And then they're kind of do their whole shopping thing and she goes to put them back and the Uzi's gone. And you oh, realize someone else is with them. Yeah. And then they hear, attention shoppers, we have a special today. And like the infected are trying to get their blood and they've like, the guys have gone crazy and they're on the PA system. Oh, actually, that, uh, really... I don't remember that. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it, it really, really holds up. The two girls, the two girls are really, Kelly Maroney is well, one I'm, of I'm always, really, I've really always been fantastic. a big fan of, uh, I've always been a big fan of Kelly Maroney. I think she does, a, uh, and she was really, she was especially good in that movie. I mean, like, I look, the classic of that, of that genre, I think the the big mamu, the one that every they're all judged by, is probably the Andromeda Strain. Oh yeah, they're, yes. That's the prestige one. That's the one that every all the. If you're not talking about just some weird zombie breakout happening, if you're talking about a, a like oh a genuine disease that it could happen, and you're trying to clamp it down, that's the one that it, uh, they all get judged by. I think. No, it's I, I agree. I mean, Robert Wise's film that is. That, that's the one. It's I mean, yeah, there's I Am Legend, the Omega Man, but for, but the, the one that if if you haven't seen it, that's the well that everyone's drinking from. Yeah, Omega Man. I don't think that that stuff counts. That all happened after the fact. When a disease killed everybody, now you're the only guy left. That's not a disease movie. That's you know, uh, uh, apocalypse. yeah, that's an apocalypse movie. <laughs> no, we're, we we have Andromeda Strain to talk about. I lo- I mean, I love Andromeda. What do you think? What is it about? It's such a simple movie, and it's so well done. And it just, it just, the pace of that movie just moves and moves. I mean, Robert Wise does that in The Haunting. And I mean, his, his filmography is incredible. It's a combination of Robert Wise's clear eyed direction and Michael Crichton's clever script, uh, novel and script. Wise ends up being a really good director for uh, Michael Crichton. And uh, everything in it is plausible, everything in it sounds possible. You know, like you were saying, there's other movies that become a, that like could be disease movies, but they ultimately become apocalypse movies. I mean, like uh, a movie that I'm a big fan of, I'm a big big fan of, is the, the TV movie Where Have All the People Gone with Peter Graves. Oh yeah, and that's that's terrific. Yeah, um, but that ultimately ends up being an apocalypse movie. It's like an event happened that yeah, like damn that caused everybody yeah, to like disintegrate. Dam- damnation yeah. Alley. Yeah, damnation yeah. alley. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's an event that happened that that caused everything to to go away, but. The fact that the disease is the is a disease, and they've got to maintain it, and they've got to control it, and and the 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 consequences of if it gets out, and what would the spread rate be? All of that stuff is taken very very seriously in the Andromeda Strain. It's a terrific movie. Yeah, I, I think it's when you're talking about those type of films, it's the one to beat. It was even kind of funny because they uh, uh, at Scott Free they did a a, a modern miniseries remake of the Andromeda Strain. And so they did like a two-night thing where they redid the novel, whatever. But, you know, nothing wrong with these actors, but like, you know, they're casting Benjamin Bratt and all these like sexy girls and guys to play all the characters. Now, Robert Wise, you know, it's like David Wayne. It's Arthur Hill, uh, James Olsen. There was all, you know, it was all these like middle-aged, uh, uh, regular-looking people that like actually look like they have the degrees that they're supposed to have. No, it's true. He cast people that really look like those scientists and the epidemiologists. Not just no, like, you buy yeah. It's not like all of a sudden. Like really yeah, so there's all people. these scientists and Raquel Welsh. No, no, no. That's not that's not the case. Right? Yeah, no.
I also love the 1980 Italian apocalypse, Lucio Fulci version of the apocalypse, you know, City of the Living Dead with Giovanni Lombardi Radice getting the drill press pushed through his skull and a maggot storm. You know, Lucio Fulci just taking the apocalypse idea and just like going next level, like vomiting guts and like priest eyes bleeding and, and like Michele Suave and the guts coming out of the mouth. It's amazing. Uh, of his gore movies, that's hands down my favorite of his gore movies. I really like I really like Zombie. Zombie, I think, works more works more from a from its mythology kind of standpoint. Like you can imagine other zombie movies. And that's why I like the idea of a zombie comic book was a really neat idea. But as far as like an entertaining movie from beginning to end, City of the Walking Dead is the Gates of Hell. What I always think of it as Gates of Hell. That's what it was released in America as. I know. Yeah. Gates of Hell. It's again, you know, changing the title 15 different ways. But that movie sort of opening the Gates of Hell, kind of sort of a precursor to the beyond. But that movie, that opening scene in the car in the cemetery yeah. with the girl's eyes bleeding and Michele Suave vomiting out the guts is just, it's unforgettable apocalyptic imagery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I love the, I love the Hitchcockian bit of uh, the girl buried alive in the coffin and uh, Christopher George trying to dig her out and the, the pickaxe, you know, going through the coffin. Yeah. That's a great sequence. It's an amazing sequence. Well, by the way, so Fulci with Two Buried Alive, I mean, he does that just after the psychic. I mean, Seven Notes in Black. We're going to talk about psychics on the show. I mean, Fulci does two. I mean, is that is the psychic your favorite Fulci of those? Oh, easily. There was two kind of Lucio Fulci's. There was like the, the guy who did the gore films and then the guy who did more classy movies. And the people who like the gore films don't give a damn about the classy films. And the people who like the classy films probably don't like the gore films. All right. I like them both. But to me, the psychic, a.k.a. Uh, seven Notes to the Tune of Black. Sette Notti in Nero. Yeah, yeah no, I just like, even like saying that title. Sette Notti in Nero. It's one of my favorite giallos. It's one of my favorite Italian horror films of the 70s. It's actually one of my favorite thrillers. It's one of my favorite thrillers of the 70s. I kind of love everything about that movie. There, there's a... a um, and you brilliantly use that music in Kill yeah, yeah. Bill. Like, most people don't know that. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. No, I mean, the, the, the soundtrack is terrific. Jennifer O'Neill gives one of her best performances, and I'm a big Jennifer O'Neill fan. She's fantastic in it. The costumes in the film are fantastic. The storytelling is really great. It has a real handsome look. I mean, if if, if you just watch the New York Ripper and think that that's what Lucio Fulci is and you watch The Psychic, you cannot believe the same guy directed both movies. Four years apart. It's unbelievable. But that's it's interesting. The thing about Fulci, and there's a documentary that his daughter Antonella told me about called Fulci Talks that's talking about him. Um, where it's a bunch of interviews of Fulci and uh -huh. someone made into a documentary. He was the guy who could put the star in the genre first. Mm -hmm. You know, Argento put himself yeah, first. Yeah. And a lot of these other, you know, Leonu put themselves first. But Fulci was able to adapt, whether it's the maniacs doing his comedy, when he does La Pretoria with Edwige Fennec, mm -hmm. he's doing a, an Edwige Fennec sex comedy vehicle. Yeah, yeah. When he does How I Robbed the Bank of Italy, he's doing the comedic Italian crime movie. And when he does the giallo, well, first he does with Beatrice Cenci. Yeah. Beatrice Cenci, it's this amazing, powerful drama. 
but very critical of the Catholic Church, and the critics went against him. And then he does Don't Torture a Duckling, which well, is I a love Well, I love Don't Torture a Duckling. But masterpiece, Barbara Boucher, I mean, and Mark Porel, but very critical yeah. of the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah, you think? <laughs> it, it, you think, yeah. And so the critics are against him. But he basically sort of surrenders his identity to the movie. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, he's almost, because he, and then he does, um, you know, Silver Saddle. Yeah, yeah. With Giuliano Gemma and Four of the Apocalypse, he does these fantastic, yeah, yeah. fantastic spaghetti westerns. He does comedy. He does spaghetti western. He does giallo. Then he's fifty, and then Fabrizio D'Angelo's is like, "Here, just do this horror movie." And then he comes out with that amazing run yeah. of zombie city, you know, zombie gates of hell, the beyond, New York, the House Ripper, by the Cemetery, sort of ends at Manhattan, baby, or House by the Cemetery. But he's sort of known for that, and then he almost becomes a parody of himself. By the end of his life, he's making Cat in the yeah. Brain, where he's just like, it's like, it's like Fulci's Eight and a Half about, it, it, it's such an interesting director that he sort of never appreciated. The thing that makes him a great director is that he can adapt to any genre, but it's also the thing that sort of makes him not known as a director because no one can distinguish his films except the Gore movie. Yeah, but then, okay, you cut to after his death, and then you go to every Fangoria convention for the, for the next 20 years, and kids are walking around with Fulci Lives t-shirts. I know, and he never lived to see it. I think he got to see it once, like in 97, he went to his first Fangoria convention, he got to be appreciated, and then he died. But, well, but yeah, no, well, it would be psychic, a nice, I, faulty touch for him to be able to see, see, for him to live long enough to see a faulty Lives t-shirt. I know. Well, his daughter does. His daughter's, Antonioni saw it. I know, his daughter does. Um, I mean, what a cool... Speaking but I mean, really, of but psychics, actually, what a what a cool what a cool, note, what a what a cool honor for a director, all right? For your fans to you you pass on, and your fans like wear T-shirts that say, you know, Fulci lived. He's it. I mean, in Hostel Two, we were channeling the spirit of Lucio Fulci. But anytime I do a gore scene, yeah, yeah. we say, "Please, Lucio, with us." And you told me you did the same thing on Kill Bill. Yeah, I did the thing, same thing with Shang uh, Shang uh, Shang Shang right. <laughs> channeling the masters. Yeah. But psychics, I know you love the psychic, but there's a couple other psychic movies. The Fury, De Palma comes off of Carrie and he goes right into The Fury. It's almost inexplicable. It's like he sort of makes the same film over. Why do you think he does that? Are you a fan of The Fury? And then, of course, Cronenberg picks it up with Scanners. I used to be a big fan of The Fury. Now I think it's kind of cheesy. I don't never need to see it again. All right. Uh, but I still, I still kind of uh, appreciate it as a De Palma fan. Part of the situation about why he did The Fury was was kind of twofold. He wanted to do a bigger budget movie. He felt he'd always been kind of stuck doing these low, bu- low budget things. He wanted to do something with a bigger canvas and a bigger budget, and he could hire more famous actors in it. And so after Carrie, you know, he gets offered this script, and yes, it's pretty similar to what he just did, but it offers him that bigger plate, that it offers him that bigger movie, that bigger canvas. And he's got a, a big-time producer, Frankie Blondes, producing it. But the other thing about, and I think he was wrong, I think De Palma was wrong about this, De Palma's big hit that you know, got him the fury was Carrie. But he was really, really on about the idea that if Carrie had had a famous actor in it, a big famous movie star in it, it would have done even better. Uh, you know, I think when The Omen actually ended up outbeating him at the box office, he really resented that. And he said, the reason The Omen did better is because they had Gregory Peck. 
I'm not saying Gregory Peck should have been in Carrie, but if but if it, we could have had a Gregory Peck in Carrie, it would have beaten the omen. And he was he was just positive. It was because he didn't have a, a big famous movie star. And so the Fury gave him a bigger canvas and it gave him to hire all these famous people as uh, uh, in the supporting cast, but it also allowed him to have Kurt Douglas. Okay, now I have my my Gregory Peck. Now I have my movie star who can lead this. What does it say about him blowing up John Cassavetes? At the- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the that's the best. The, yeah, the the. the the Cassavetes blow-up scene is the best scene in the film. Well, what about the psychics blowing things up? I mean, Scanners is, is just the single greatest. One of that and Maniac might be my two famous, or Dawn of the Dead, my famous uh, favorite head explosions in movies. Scanners. Well, Scanners does it great, but but the Palma had already done it in, in in the Fury, so yeah, it's great. I mean, well, Scanners is just like the Fury Part Two. Back when I liked the Fury more, I was always resenting the fact that it kept trying to be a horror film because I thought it wasn't that successful as a horror film. But as this new age James Bond secret agent kind of thing, that was what was really good about it. That was really interesting. And whenever it dealt in that aspect of it, it was like fresh and it, and it was exciting. And you know, the whole idea that like they're working for these agents and they're both secret agents, uh, John Cassavetes and uh, Kurt Douglas, our secret, our secret agents. That was really, really neat. Well, Scanners does the same thing too. The whole, the best part of Scanners is that whole opening twenty minutes, where all the agents are out there trying to kill each other. I love. I mean, for me, Scanners, those effects. I had, when I was a kid and I saw it, I'd never seen the the way the veins went up. Michael Irons. Oh no, that was that. no, that's fantastic. But I mean, you you had seen the Fury by the time you saw Scanners, though, right? I think I was too young. I saw the Fury after. That's okay. Why. Okay, so but yeah, the, it was the Cronenberg body horror stuff. Yeah, so I saw them out of okay. Order. So you saw them out. Yeah, okay. So if, if you've seen the Fury, when you see Scanners, it's like, well, yeah, well, it's good. It's not John Cassavetes being blown up from head to toe in slow motion. Good. <laughs> it's more like the Fury. Nineteen eighty-one. You didn't forget the Fury from yeah, seventy-eight. I mean, today, uh, today, yeah. yeah. I think they're more familiar with Scanners. <laughs> oh, I think they are. Well, um, Scanners is ultimately, I think, the better. The better film. If it wasn't for Stephen Lack, uh, he Stephen is lacking. I just want to remake the movie without Stephen Lack. But the weird part about Stephen Lack, though, is the movie that got Stephen Lack Scanners should be watched. It's a really interesting uh, Canadian film by Alan Moyle, the guy who did Times Square, and it's called The Rubber Gun. And it's sort of like a drugstore cowboy, Dusty and Sweets McGee, uh, Panic in Needle Park kind of film. And he's the leader of the kind of junkie types in the film. And he's fantastic. And it actually looks like a like a completely improv performance. The entire like they, they set up situations, so but they're weird, improvising he's it. So stiff and and he's amazing in it. You can see why he got cast after the rubber gun, because he's terrific in the rubber gun. And the rubber gun's a really good movie. And then you see him as Canners and you're like, what the fuck is this guy? Now, you, you go out and watch The Rubber Gun. You will not believe that, you know, oh, one of the worst lead performances of all time was given by this guy? He's terrific.
rabid. Yeah, when it comes to infected people movie, uh, probably my very favorite is David Cronenberg's Rabbit. I love Rabbit. That was like the first film of David Cronenberg's I ever saw. I didn't know mm -hmm. who he was. I barely knew who Marilyn Chambers was. I remember I saw it, the Rolling Hills Twin. I remember watching it and like, oh, this is pretty good and going along with it. And I'm like, wow, this is getting a little rougher than I was expecting. But when the operation yeah. scene happens and the doctor takes the nurse's finger and it cuts it off with the uh, uh, the scissors, I'm like, oh my God, what am I watching? And then it just gets crazier and crazier. And, and that was actually, I think, the first time where I really noticed like people being infected in a big way. Okay, now this person's got it. Now that person's got it. Now that person's got it. Now this person's got it. And then ending it in the, you know, with the the people in the hazmat suits just picking up the bodies and throwing them in, including our heroine, uh, throwing them in the in the uh, garbage truck. I, I, the, the whole thing just blew me away. I thought it was fantastic. So like when I went and saw The Brood, I saw The Brood because I recognized the name David Cromwell. Oh, hey, that's the guy from Rabbit. Because it was before, when The Brood came out, he still wasn't, they still weren't writing about him in Famous Monsters. They still weren't writing about him in Fangoria yet. I, I recognized his name from Rabbit. Yeah, the first two movies I saw of his were Rabbit and the Brood. Mm -hmm. I remember the poster of Scanners, but I remember the video box, the Warner video box of Rabbit. Yeah. And I knew that it was Marilyn Chambers. And even being aware that it was some kind of metaphor for sexually transmitted diseases, and then going back and then watching Shivers, and they came yeah, from yeah. within. And then, of course, Videodrome. And David, I mean, he was probably the biggest, you know, with those other guys. You know, I tried to mix slashers and body horror, uh -huh. but... The idea of losing control of your body was so terrifying to me and always traumatized me that that, I think I thought that when dogs were rabid, they were going to get something coming out of your armpit. I actually thought that the, that's what being rabid was because of that movie. Yeah, the whole, I, look, the whole idea of the uh, rabid disease that turns you into a homicidal maniac and the fact that it's, you know, once you get bit now, now you have it and, and like, leading to such a horrible situation that martial law has broken out by the end and it's and, and Toronto is in flames with everyone going crazy. It's a terrific movie and what he was able to do with his budget, it, it doesn't show. And I really like Marilyn Chambers in it. I like that actor Frank Moore, the guy who looks like John Savage, that's uh, her boyfriend in the film. He's, a, he's yeah. one of the Canadian actors that Cronenberg worked with that I really liked a lot. I've seen him in a few other Canadian movies. I like that guy, Frank Moore, the, the John Savage looking guy. Yeah, well, I remember seeing, you know, one of the great things about if you look like the end of They Came From Within, where they're all in that swimming pool mm -hmm. writhing around and the whole apartment building's infected, it sort of let me know, oh, you don't have to resolve it. Yeah, yeah. You can have a horror movie end where just everyone dies and it just gets worse and worse and worse and <laughs> yeah, worse. Right. Until <laughs> pretty much everybody has it and then it yeah, ends. Yeah. That, I didn't know that that was a possibility. <laughs> But then he does it two, sort of two movies in a row. Uh -huh. It's like the ending of Videodrome with Long Live the New Flesh, where you're just like, what the hell did I just yeah, watch? Right. <laughs> and it just, the staying power of those Cronenberg films, the imagery, the things, he took horror in such a weird direction. But in the case of Rabbit, it, you know, it has such a definitive ending, that shot of just taking your heroine. We've been following her, and she's the disease carrier. She's the one that's giving it to everybody. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you yeah. know, so a slow motion shot of her being thrown into a garbage pail was a pretty strong ending. Roger Corman, Mask of Red Death. Are you a fan of that movie? Yeah. No, Mask of the Red Death is my favorite of the, the Poe movies. Even more so than Pit and the Pendulum. 
yeah, the other one, I'm, I'm a big fan of Roger Corman. I'm not the biggest fan of, of the, the Poe films. They seem too set-bound. They seem too creaky. They seem too uh-huh. dusty, with the exception of Mask of the Red Death. I think that actually was probably, at least for what Corman wanted to do, I think it was his biggest budget. I, I mean, the Secret Invasion might have been, had, might have had more money for that. But compared to the other Poe movies, his visual scheme was able to explode on Mask of the Red Death. It doesn't look cheap. It's not as, it's not set bound, as set bound as the rest of them. Lots of extras. He's able to kind of explode his visual sense. He's got Nicholas Rogue as his cinematographer. And uh, Vincent Price is playing much more sinister and realistic than he is in the other ones. It's like, as far as like the, the Vincent Price performances in those type of monster movies, not the fun ones, but those type of monster movies, it's like there, his, there is performance in Mask of the Red Death where he's just, you can't believe how sadistic he is. And then there, there's his character in Witchfinder General. Yeah, his Matthew Hopkins is amazing in Witchfinder yeah. General. And then, but, you know, but the fact that like the, the plague is a thing in the movie is... You know, is is a is a big deal. Actually, the movie that dealt with the Black Plague the best, as far as I was concerned, isn't a horror film. It's James Clavell's movie, The Last Valley, with uh, Michael Caine and Omar Sharif. That was a movie where they're all dealing with the Black Plague, and I remember I was like a little, you know, I was like six or something when I saw it with my stepdad, and it was like. What is that? What are they talking about? Well, son, you see, it's about there was this time where there's this disease called the Black Plague, and it killed half the people on the planet. And and, uh, uh, oh, really, huh? And so I found that whole thing terribly frightening. (laughs) That movie, The Last Last Valley, just because it deals with the Black Plague in such a, a serious way, that movie ended up being a completely terrifying movie to me. I never saw it. I got to see it. Now, I got to see it. Another movie, speaking of like diseases, this is not a disease movie, but the way the mythology of horror is presented, it almost feels like a disease movie. Not even the disease movies were a thing back then. But the way vampirism is treated in House of Dark Shadows is very Mm -hmm. similar to what a zombie bite does. Or the way in rabbits, somebody gets bitten and now they've got this disease and now they're, they're not who they were. Now, I saw that when it came out in 1970. Now, look, I hadn't seen that many horror films by that point in time, obviously. But I have since then. And vampires and vampirism wasn't treated exactly the way it was treated in House of Dark Shadows until House of Dark Shadows. It seemed like Dan Curtis went out to just completely blow Hammer out of the water. And I kind of think they did. I mean, there's actually a lot of Hammer movies that I like more than House of Dark Shadows. House of Dark Shadows actually ends up being a little cheesy by the very end, but it did seem new, and it seemed incredibly graphic, and it was also really hip, and it was fun. It was hip in the way that the Hammer films weren't hip. In fact, I really do think Dracula AD 1972 is their way to try to do House of Dark Shadows. That was their way to hip up their movies after House of Dark Shadows. But being a little kid, you were just surprised at how this character is now turned into a vampire, and this character is turned into a vampire, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one. And they're all able to be duplicitous. You don't know that they're a vampire until they you know, go like that. Mm-hmm. You said you were going to meet me over there. Yes, I know, but the thing happened. But you need to help me because Je- Jeannie needs your help. Where? Which this way? Arr. 
it's not a disease movie, but vampirism is treated as if it is a disease. As if it's a disease. I mean, it's actually treated so much as if it's a disease. There's a doctor there trying to cure Barnabas Collins of his vampirism. And it's working. It's a disease to be cured. You're not turned into a creature of the night. And it's, like, well, it's basically like, in it's sort of... It's a different way of dealing with it, but it's what I saw in Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, treating it as the metaphor for yeah, drug yeah, addiction. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. House of Dark Shadows, I don't think plays it as a metaphor. It's just a slightly different way of looking at vampirism in total. And as a, on a technical level. So I don't think it's a metaphor. I think it's just, it's just a different way of looking at it. And it becomes a much more modern way. The movie actually seems... Nowadays, you look at it, the movie seems really hip. But now when you go back to 1970, when it was made, it's really hip. Forget about the fact that also that was such a successful TV show. The sh TV show was still on the air when they did it. And he basically, he, he doesn't just tell another weird story with these characters. He retells the entire story he's been telling for the last three years on television. That's already a smash. He just retells it like in two hours. He takes, you know, like if you watch House of Dark Shadows, you would watch it for three weeks to see what happens in the first 15 minutes. House of Dark Shadows. That's three weeks in episodes, Monday through Friday. But he, but they, he pulls it together. He pulls, he, you know, he does a pretty amazing job of taking the mythology that he spent three years doing and boiling it down into one movie, while the show is still on the air. Oh, while wow, it was on TV. It was still, still on the air. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Everybody knew who Barnabas was. Barnabas was. It was crazy the pop cultural significance that Barnabas Collins had in 69 and 70. As a little boy, I knew who Barnabas was. You know, you couldn't go into a head shop store without a Barnabas Collins poster. I mean, right next to uh, Peter Fonda as uh, uh, Captain America and, and Dennis Hopper as uh, Billy the Kid uh -huh. riding their motorcycles. Right next to McQueen on his bike from uh, uh, Great Escape was always a, a Barnabas poster. Train to Busan. Yeah. Zombie movie, infection movie. What do you think? Is it a zombie movie or an infection movie? I mean, it's kind of both, but I think you could probably fall into either category. I think it's both. The infection, no, it, yeah, no, it's a zombie movie. They're, they're dead. They're not sick. They're dead. Yeah. Yeah, when they, when they kill the deer at the beginning and he comes back to life, okay, no, they're zombies. The point of that is sort of experiencing this thing that's coming at you. Yeah, yeah. Like the pandemic is. The zombies are actually particles yeah, 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 approaching yeah. you in a way. Right. So I think, yeah, so it's like, you know, it's a... a, a but also, yeah, it's not a disease. It's not, it's not a disease. It's like a nerve gas. So it's like a weapon. A weapon kills you. A weapon kills you and then reanimates you. <laughs> it's like a bioweapon. Yeah. It's a bioweapon. Wreck is another movie that crosses that line between infected. Oh, by the way, have you seen the terrible sequel to it? Wreck two? No. Or no, no, one, no. I'm not talking about Wreck. No, the, the uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. The sequel oh, to no, Train the Peninsula. It's terrible. Oh no, I mean, it's terrible. Terrible. No. And it looks like it cost five times what Train to Busan cost. God, it was such a brilliant film, the first it's, one. Such a perfect it's movie. terrible. And not only that, not only is it terrible, he's trying to make Mad Max Fury Road. But oh, a bad, 
bad Mad Max. So it's Mad Max Train to Busan. Mm. I, Train to Busan was probably one of the only movies I've really, really cried very heavily in. But oh, no, no. I, I, I love Train to Busan. I actually showed it to a couple of friends in Tel Aviv who had never seen it before. And one of them was like, I don't know if I've ever seen a horror film this intense. <laughs> I know. It's the one of the movies and the, probably the most, because there's so many people on the train to set up and you know who everyone is and you know what all the relationships it, uh, are. And then that businessman that they lock out, like is still nice to him. And that just the way they set up the dynamics and having to get from one car to the oh, other. Yeah. And then the ending, the way the, the way the shadow he falls. And then you think, are the soldiers going to shoot the little girl yeah, yeah, when yeah. they're walking? And like, oh my God, they, they might do this. No, just, I mean, but just, just that image of the father carrying the little girl running with like seemingly a thousand infected people chasing him, like right on his ass. Yeah, with that music, boom, 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 boom. That's just complete adrenaline. It is interesting how that genre, you think it's all been done and it's, you think it's been done before and then a movie like Train to Busan comes out and you just go, oh yeah, they, they just, yeah, no. I've never seen anything I like thought, it. When Train to Busan came, you're the one that turned me on to it. When Train to Busan came out, I was like, there's no way I can watch another zombie movie or infected people movie. I just can't do it anymore. And I was wrong. Would you say, I mean, Raw is a cannibal movie, but is that a disease movie? Is that an infected or is that an inheritance movie? Julie DeCorno's Raw, the French film, yeah. they, they almost treat cannibalism as a disease. Yeah. And those scenes in the veterinarian school, and they're trying to treat it by eating the animal meat and it's not working. Mm -hmm. And the guy wanting to feed the leg. And then when she sees the video of herself and she's in that yeah. state just chomping at the flesh and the guy peeling up his shirt. The Raw was one of, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite films. I was doing a list uh, with uh, some friends the other day. Uh, no, Raw is, I think, is one of the top five best movies made by a millennial. Yeah. Well, I told John Watts he was on the list. He was very yeah. happy. He really appreciated that. that oh, that's that's the uh, the cop car, right? Yeah, cop yeah, car. Yeah. And Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. Dr. Sleep, Mike Flanagan, mm -hmm. Haunting Hill House. I Well, I love that movie. I, I almost Dr. don't want to Sleep talk too. about it because I just taped off a ta television. Apparently, on cable, they're, they're, they're showing an extended cut of it. But that's the one to see. Of Dr. Yeah, Sleep. Yeah, it's like two and a half hours long. Yeah. And I don't remember it. I saw it at the theaters. I don't remember it being two it's and a half hours long. Because basically the theatrical version cuts out a lot of Ewan McGregor's performance of his oh, really? recovery from alcoholism. And yeah. That's the best part. Well, I really liked it at the theaters. So I'm I'm very happy to see another half hour. Uh, or Well, tell me what you thought. This is great. Like, I, I loved it. I mean, a lot. The Shining is another one of those movies that everyone thought was untouchable. How dare you make a sequel? Then he writes a book, and I loved Doctor Sleep. Yeah, I thought Doctor Sleep was like terrific. Like I, I will admit that it hasn't stayed with me, the way I think a classic horror film should. But when I was in the movie theater watching it, I was loving it. Now a lot of people say that it falls apart once they get to the Overlook. I don't think it falls apart. It's not as good as it had been up until that point. Uh, I don't think it falls apart. I think it sneaks by. But then the coda at the end is so good. The coda with the mm -hmm. little girl at the end writens it. I mean, but the whole thing with Mike Flanagan, though, is um, I think he's drastically the best horror filmmaker to come out in the in the last decade. But as far as his movies are concerned, he has yet to do one movie that takes it from the beginning to the end as a satisfied mm -hmm. movie. You can always tell his, he always he does these straight to video 
movies, like mm-hmm. uh, Occultus or uh, a Ouija 2. And then the first mm-hmm. 45 minutes are so good. You're like, wow, this is so much better. And then he reminds you it's a straight-to-video sequel in the last 20 minutes because it can only be so good. And so I was hoping that Dr. Sleep would be the one that takes it from beginning to end. And he, he still has yet to do that. He did it with his miniseries. He did it with well, The Haunting of Hill, Hill House. But even in that one, the last episode was not, it was it was the least of its episodes. It was still good. It was still the least episode. But I think that's a, that's a magnificent miniseries, the haunting, of, uh, the haunting of Hill House. I think what he did with that is fantastic. I love all of his movies, but he has yet to pull, for me to pull it off all the way to the very end. But when I was in the theater, I loved Dr. Sleep. I thought Rebecca Ferguson was Yeah, I, I liked her. I, I liked her, her character a lot. She was great. I read the book after I saw the movie. And I like it sort of. How is the book? I could play the movie. The book is good. And there's a really good audio book that, uh-huh. that's really terrific that like, I got to I'm, really fast. I'm willing to bet that the movie's better than the book. I like the book because I heard Ewan McGregor and I heard, you know, saw Rebecca Ferguson yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and I saw Abra. Like I saw the, I, could, I, I read it after I saw uh-huh. You know the the movie, so I so I could play the movie while I was listening to it and picture it like now I remember it. Oh, that's in the book As if they were in the well, movie. Well, that's really so. That's pr- that's pretty cool though that you like you know you like the movie so much that that drove you to read the book. Yeah, and the first the first half of the book is uh, it's really faithful to the book up until you get to the Overlook base. Okay. Uh-huh. Of course, the Overlook yeah. was blown up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I'm actually interviewing Mike Flanagan next week for this. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan. I don't know if I've ever been so terrified by the end of a movie as Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers the first time I saw it in terms of last shots of a film and the whole thing in San Francisco. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, the, that movie's been remade a bunch of times, but um, I pretty much like all the remakes. I like Don Siegel's original. I like Philip Kaufman's San Francisco self-help <laughs> guru one. And I like uh, uh, Abel Ferrar's. Mm-hmm. Uh, won a lot. But it was interesting. I actually, I was showing a girlfriend the Philip Kaufman version. And so I kind of explained to her the mythology of uh, the Body Snatchers. We watched the movie and she really liked it. Then a little bit later, I showed her the original with Don Siegel, the Don Siegel one. And, uh, and she really liked that too. So again, I'm having a situation where I'm kind of introducing this movie and this kind of famous horror film science fiction mythology to somebody who wasn't familiar with it, and she really responded. But having seen both of those movies quite a few times, watching them anew and watching them through somebody else's eyes, I saw something this last time in both versions that I'd never seen before. But I don't think I'm ever going to do this. I might hire somebody to write it or I might produce it, but I don't think I'm ever going to direct it, but I thought about it. In watching it this last time, both movies, I actually think the pod people maybe get a bad rap. The movies treat the pod people as sinister, but there's not really anything they do in the movie that comes across as overtly sinister. It's pretty much almost like Starship Troopers. It's, it's a very human being specific sense of uh, speciesism. 
to look at them in an in a, in a evil way. Here's the deal. If you think that the pod people are killing the humans and replacing them, if you think they're committing murder, well, that's one thing. But, you know, by the way, you know, flowers, vines, weeds, you know, they do that with other living uh, plant life. They do it with trees. Trees will do it with something else and then grows out of something else. In nature, that, that happens all the time. That's what they are. They're vegetables. But most of us probably consider that it's our consciousness is what makes us who we are, not this undefinable thing called soul which sounds mm -hmm. more like something a poet would talk about than anybody mm -hmm. really would talk about. It's my knowledge. It's the, things, it's the things that I filled my head with. It's the things that I have cared about. It's the things that I learned, the things that I studied. It is my consciousness that makes me who I am. Well, when the pot people replace you, your consciousness goes on. Everything you ever learned, everything you've ever known is passed on to the pot people. The only thing you don't have are human emotions. Now, the first thing, first movie and the second movie, try to present that as a bad thing. Well, oh, you don't have human emotions. They don't cry. They don't, they don't feel sad. They don't laugh. No one's laughing. Well, yes, that's one way to look at it. But then there's also a whole lot of other horrible human emotions that have made the world horrible. Well, they don't have them either. And that's never talked about. The pod people are simply trying to exist and they work together and they work together as a unit. The pod people don't have emotions. And so, like for instance, in the Donald Sutherland version, there's never any vengeance on their part towards Donald Sutherland. They just want to turn him. It doesn't matter how many pod people he's killed up until now. It doesn't matter what a, what a problem it is. They always just, they capture him, but they, they're never like, we're going to teach you a lesson. No, they just want him to assimilate. They just want to assimilate. They want to be one. I thought what would be a good movie would be not another remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but a sequel to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but a sequel to the Don Siegel one. So it's the 50s. Mm -hmm. And the spores or whatever they are they landed in two places. Mm -hmm. They landed in that place in apparently Northern California. That is where the, the Don Siegel movie is taking place at. But they also landed somewhere in Mississippi in the 50s. In a brutally segregated area in Mississippi. Where the black folks are subjugated. Heavy clan activity there. There's the, uh, the black folk shantytown. There's a, uh, there's a richer white folks area and there's heavy clan population going on. A lot of the women uh, in, the, in the black community work as domestics for the richer white people in the houses of the richer white people. And the spores land there. And now both rich white folks and poor black folks are getting turned into pot people. And what do they do? They all work together. Now, all of a sudden, the woman who's the maid for the banker's family and the, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, his wife gets turned into a pot person. That black maid gets turned into a pot person. Now they're seen in town conspiring with each other. And then it becomes more. And it becomes more. 
and it becomes more. And all the racial hatred, all the animus, uh, all the, uh, the bigotry goes away because that's not what the pot people are about. So in there, the humans are the bad guys. Such an interesting idea. Everything that's like that, that everything that's made a big deal about about what a crime, what a loss it is in the first movie is what a blessing it is. And the pot people actually do it. They turn over the town and then it becomes a big deal in the in the media. Oh, my God, this town that had this horrible clan situation going on and like, you know, uh, uh, brutal crimes. And now all of a sudden everybody's working together and everybody lives in the same place and it's all going along. And apparently it's affecting even some of the neighboring communities, too. <laughs> So everyone's getting along. This goodwill is spreading. But this, this That's is this wonderful idea. goodwill. Where, where, where is this coming from? All right, this is amazing, magnificent. See, look at what us humans can do when we put our minds to it. I think it's a great. I think you should do that. I don't want to I direct that, that to everything, but it's I like uh, uh, I think it should be made in black and white. It should be made like you know, like literally, like it's a, a invasion of the biocentrist part two. So it's a direct sequel to the Kevin McCarthy movie. To so the Don Siegel one. Awesome. And then it ends with like one of the horrible clan, well, one of the horrible clan guys actually uh, finally escapes from the town and he escapes. He doesn't get caught, you know, but he's like, you know, they're not real. They're coming to get you. It's like, you know, he's, he's like Kevin McCarthy, except yeah, he's, he's, he's this a horrible, horrible villain. <laughs> it's a great They're going to get you. They're going to get you. That's a observation. <laughs> and they're going to get you and they're going to make you all get along with each other. <laughs> Just one of the greatest. Um, Kurt, are there any others we no, should I hit? Think, and then I we think can we're good. I think, uh, you know, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And thank no, you so good. much. No, my pleasure, man. Th thanks a lot, guys. Quentin, you are the greatest. There's no one like you. <laughs> no, I, I'm just so happy. This is great. My, my, I have to be up in three hours to shoot. Oh, my uh, goodness. Oh, wow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Quentin. And that was Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino. Thank you for joining us for Season 3 of Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazis, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Ross' History of Horror, Uncut.